Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Welcome to episode 104 of Killer Hangover. My name is Beth. And I'm Bettina. And this week we will be covering true crime, paranormal, and a beverage from the state of New Jersey. I will be telling the true crime story this week and mom will be sharing paranormal and a cocktail with me. <laughs> I don't know how paranormally it is. Oh, but... <laughs> gosh. Here we go. Well, last week we were putting on tinfoil hats. So true. True. It's more paranormally than that. But <laughs> <laughs> we should just have it be the bizarre. We had too much fun with the bizarre stories. Maybe we should change it to true crime and bizarreties. <laughs> ah, that's an idea. Okay. So I looked at drinks, you know, from New Jersey, and there's a lot of red wine drunk in New Jersey, I guess. Really? That was interesting. Then they had some fun drinks. But I wanted a red drink. I know I could have done red wine. <laughs> but ever since COVID, I've had a little problem with the red wine thing. So not all red wine sits very well in my stomach. So I decided to make a red drink of my own. And you kind of inspired me with your airplane drinks. Oh. So I made a cranberry vodka. Okay. And then I wanted to make it even more red. So I put a splash of grenadine in there too. Is there a reason why you needed your drink to be so red? No. No, yes, I, there is. <laughs> Has really nothing to do with the famous drinks of New Jersey. But when you listen to my story, it definitely had to be a red drink. Okay. Okay, so you're drinking cranberry vodka? With a dash of grenadine. Dash of grenadine. And not little lime wedges squeezed in there? I had no lime. I had no lime and no time. <laughs> so, oh, <gosh. laughs> I put a splash of grenadine. <laughs> okay, well, enjoy the uh, red cocktail. <laughs> Let's jump into the true crime story. Alrighty. And if you hear snoring, it's Annabelle. She is right at my feet. And the old girl is getting old and snoring louder if you hear and snoring, louder. It's not me, <laughs> it's Annabelle. Mom, wake up. <laughs> It is my dog, Annie. She's she's an old girl and she's she's got a flat face anyway, so <laughs> <laughs> the breathing issues are getting worse and worse, poor thing. Okay. This case is very interesting to me because although we have some answers, we don't have all the answers. Great. My story takes place in Bogota, New Jersey. Just a hop over the George Washington Bridge from New York City. It was February 13th, 2001. The day started like any other Tuesday. The Viola family were up and at them, bright and early to take on their day. Patricia, or Pat, was a devoted housewife and mother. She was up early getting her children's lunches made and backpacks packed. 
Her husband, Jim, came into the kitchen and kissed his wife goodbye, heading to work at his normal time of 6.30 a.m. Pat seemed a little sad to him, but nothing that made him necessarily worry. He was also a bit preoccupied on his way out the door. He had a big presentation he was making at work that day. Pat wished Jim luck as he was out the door. Pat went on with her daily routine, like clockwork getting her children, 13-year-old Christine and 10-year-old Michael, up and out the door by 8.15. She then takes a bit of time to get herself ready, then proceeds to walk the two blocks to her son's elementary school, where she volunteered as a school librarian. She stacked books, checked books in and out, just like she had always done. She started the librarian gig about two years ago. She relished being near her children, her family, Christina and Michael were her whole life. Being their mama was her whole world. She and Jim had a beautiful relationship as well. They had met at work and from the moment they started dating, it was kind of it. The two were married. They had actually been married for 14 years at this point. Wow, I'm sitting here wondering, uh, this is a true crime. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And Pat ran a very routine, clean affectionate household. Pat was never one to raise her voice or get angry. She was happy and caring for Jim, Michael, and Christine. Again, they were her whole life. Now, as Pat was at the library volunteering, she misses a phone call from her alarm company. She Uh had a cell phone, but she wasn't really one who kept it on her. Back at home, her security alarm had been tripped. The company followed protocol, calling Jim at work, Then they called Pat, but when they were unable to reach either one of them, they proceeded to call the next person on the list, who was Pat's mother. After they got a hold of her, they did send some officers over to the Viola home to check it out. Okay. They searched the perimeter of the home, checked windows and doors, and found nothing. Pat enjoys her leisurely two-block stroll back home, unaware of the alarm. She waves to her mailman. It just all seems picturesque to me. When she gets home, she listens to a message that her mom had left her about the alarm, and she gives her mom a call back. It's around noon at this point. The very last traceable task that happens with Pat is at 1.11. She resets her alarm system. I guess Mm. when an alarm is triggered, so for her alarm, she needed to... Once it's triggered and police are called, you need to put in a specific code to like reactivate, reactivate it. your okay. alarm. At 4.30, just like he had done for many Tuesdays before, Jim arrives home. Today, he has his hands a bit full with Valentine's presents for his wife, who he is expecting to find starting dinner for her family, just as her routine had been every day. Mm-hmm. But after coming in the back door, he realizes that Pat is not home. Not only that, but the alarm was beeping, which meant that it had been set. And the only time the family sets the alarm was when they were out for the day or when they were sleeping. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Maybe Pat was out. Maybe she had to grab something for dinner preparations. Or maybe she, too, was doing a little Valentine's Day shopping. But after he went and typed the code in to disarm the system, he notices Pat's personal belongings in the kitchen. Her purse, her wallet, her phone, her keys were all there. Oh, weird. Bad sign. 
Also on the counter was a single key. It was the key they used for the deadbolt in the back door. They usually just like left it in the lock because it's for the deadbolt. Uh, yeah, yeah. The other thing he found odd and a bit concerning was that Pat's medication was also there with her purse and belongings. Pat suffered from epilepsy and had suffered since she was 12 years old. Her medication she needed, and I believe she had to take it twice a day. But taking the medication regularly helped her with her seizures. Mm -hmm. Realizing that it was a bit after 5 o'clock, he grew a bit concerned because he knew that she had to take it within a few hours. Other than that, the house was pristine. Nothing was out of place. So I'm sure she'll be home soon, he told himself. And at this point... At this point, he did not know that his alarm had been triggered, correct? I don't know. That I didn't hear anywhere, but I really, I think maybe, I think what police end up believing is maybe she just didn't close the door behind her all the way when she left. Oh. And so when she didn't close it all the way when she left, you know, maybe a wind blew and the door opened. And so then the alarm was triggered. I mean, because police did go out and search, not inside the home, of course. But they searched the perimeter of the home. They did check the windows and doors and nothing seemed to have been messed with. But the door would have been open. Right. So I I, I don't believe, I don't know if he knew about the alarm or not. Okay. He goes and picks up his children from a friend's house as planned. But when he arrives home 45 minutes later, Pat was still not home. So all of her belongings are there, but her coat is missing. So maybe she had made a quick errand out somewhere with some cash. Maybe she had taken the bus to the mall or something for some last minute Valentine's shopping for the, for the next day. Jim checked the bus schedule. Now, it is assumed she took the bus because that had been her main form of transportation for a little over three months. Like I said, Pat suffered from epilepsy and seizures. And just a few months prior in November, Pat had suffered a horrible grand mal seizure. Mm. She was taken by ambulance to the hospital. The seizure was so severe that her doctor had recommended three months of a suspended license. Okay. This really hurt Pat. She hated it. Like I said, her children and her family were her life. Making their day-to-day routine was important to her, but holidays were even more important to her. And the minor task of going to the mall for Christmas shopping and Christmas outings was just stripped from her. She hated having her independence taken from her like that. Mm -hmm. By January, she had not suffered any more seizures, but her blood work did not show as much improvement as our doctor had wanted, and he'd actually prolonged the restricted license so that she was still not allowed to drive at this point. Okay. Jim fed his children dinner and hid his worry as he put his children to bed. Where's mom? Michael asked his father. Where is she going to sleep tonight? Jim calls family and friends, and at 11.58 p.m. that night, he calls police to report his wife, Patricia, missing. Officers arrive at the Viola home that evening to take the report, and by the next morning, detectives are already working the case. Wow, okay. I think because the situation with her health Mm -hmm. and the risk of seizures... Um, I think that's why they didn't make them wait the normal 24 to 48 hours like we've heard before. 
The investigators, of course, looked into like what was the going ons in the Viola home before Pat's disappearance. Sure. Obviously, we know she wasn't in the tip top headspace with her license being restricted for three more months. She had only just gotten that news about a week prior to this. Okay. But what else was causing her stress? You know, what are these? What are the tells? Like, where were the clues to her mental state? Well, Jim's mom had fallen ill a month or so ago, and Pat had been back and forth to the hospital a lot to care for her. Mm. And then there was Donna, Jim's sister, who had recently moved into Jim and Pat's home after going through a terrible breakup. Oh. Now, it had been Pat that recommended Donna move in with them for a while, but I think she got more than what she asked for. Donna had been staying for a while, and not only does a guest cause a bit of stress when they overstay, mm-hmm. you know, it's just one more person that she had to look after. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think she started to get a little overwhelmed with that. And Donna was a smoker and would smoke in the house. Oh, no. So when Donna would leave for work, Pat would go down and just clean and vacuum and spray and try to just get the so smell extra out. work. Right. Just a couple days prior to Pat going missing, Pat had gone down to clean Donna's room and found some cigarette burn marks on the guest room's comforter. Oh, no. So now this is a dangerous situation. I mean, her kids live in the house. Right. So this is angering. Like, she's very angry about this. She raises her concerns to Jim, and the two agree to chat with Donna the following morning. Because that night, the whole family was heading to a party at Pat's best friend, Toinette's house in Brooklyn. Toinette Fazio Markowitz was hosting a party at her home. The whole Viola family went. And Toinette is interviewed on the Disappeared episode I watched, titled Missing Valentine, Season 4, Episode 5. Toinette says that when the Violas arrived, Pat looked beautiful. She had her makeup on, she was dressed very nice, a smile on her face. But being someone who knew Pat very well, Toinette felt something was a bit off. Okay. As soon as Pat walked in, she grabbed Toinette and asked to talk privately in another room. As soon as the pair entered the space in the privacy of having her best friend there, Pat broke down in tears. She disclosed to her friend that something was going on. But it was too complex to go into now at a party. She asked Toinette to cancel an upcoming family trip Toinette had planned so that the two could get together and talk about what was going on. Holy smokes. Please don't go on vacation, she begged. And Toinette agreed. Pat then looked at her best friend and pleaded, please, I need you to look after my kids no matter what happens. What? At this... Toinette starts to cry as well. She comforted and promised her friend everything was going to be okay. She begged her friend to tell her and explain what the heck was going on. Pat only said that she couldn't discuss it now, but that it was important and that she needed Toinette to listen to her. And that was it. The two went back to the party, agreeing to talk later. Now, I'm just assuming, assuming totally, just getting Pat's kind of general... Uh, behavior she's not a drama queen she just seems like she's very structured and organized yeah and so that's what I that's what I took away from it as well okay so what was it I mean 
seriously, mom, if you had something going on and you don't tell me, like you just say something's going on, I'll tell you later. I like, know I would a terrible out. thing to do to anybody. It's like, hey, cancel your vacation because something big is going to happen, but I can't tell you what it is right now. I mean, I would worry so much. Of course. Was it like, and you got to think like, was it Donna? Was it the situation with Donna that was upsetting her? Because she's such a mild mannered person. Maybe this Donna situation was just really fueling her with anger and she just didn't know how to handle those emotions. But mm-hmm. you got to think if Toinette was her best friend, she would already know about the Donna situation. Exactly. I was just going to say that she would already know. Yeah. So it wouldn't be like this big thing. I don't want to talk about it now. It'd be like, oh, Donna's driving me crazy. You know what I Again. mean? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. And then she asks to take care of her kids. Like. I would be worried sick. Yeah. And Toinette was too. The next morning, Toinette calls Pat to check in on her friend. And Toinette explains in the Disappeared episode that when Pat answered the phone, she seemed kind of hectic. She seemed a little tired, but otherwise she was okay. She brushes Toinette off and starts talking to her about Valentine's presents and gift ideas that she had for Jim. Weird. Okay. The next thing that happens is even more odd. When Pat gets off the phone with Toinette, she storms downstairs and confronts Donna about smoking in the house, but not in her normal, calm, temper, relaxing Pat way. She is yelling at Donna. She was described as a raving maniac in the Disappeared episode, and Jim expressed that he had never heard Pat ever talk like that, let alone raise her voice. Oh my gosh. What is going on? The next day, Monday, went on as normal. Same routine, same day to day. And then it was the infamous Tuesday, February 13th. And now Pat was missing. Nowhere to be found. No sign of foul play. No tips or sight of her. It was as if Patricia Viola had vanished. As the days pass, family and friends become more and more concerned for Pat and her health. She'd gone a long time now without her medication at this point. And police were even starting to take that more seriously as well. They had an aerial search taken place as well as a scent dog taken to the train tracks. And they even traced the river with the scent dog. Wow, okay. The suicide angle was looked at, but only for a fleeting moment. The George Washington Bridge was known for jumpers, but no one had jumped in that surrounding, like in that time period when Pat went missing. Mm -hmm. And even though there were some stressors, they just didn't add up to who she was. It wasn't a pattern of hers. And I mean, and leaving her kids who were her Her entire life. Right. Mm -hmm. That just, it just didn't add up. It wouldn't make any sense. Jim, of course, was looked into. Police were interested in the fact that he had taken the afternoon of the 13th off from work. But he explains that he took it off for shopping for his Valentine's presents for Pat. That's it. And his story had proof behind it. He explains in the Disappeared episode how grueling the interview was. It was really hard on him. I'm sure. But he had nothing to hide. He just wanted to find his wife. 
Jim and Toinette had a theory that they believed that Pat had gone shopping. I guess at Toinette's party, Pat had asked her about some singing monkey she had. Pat thought this monkey was hilarious and really wanted to give it to Jim as a gag gift for Valentine's Day. They thought that maybe she had gone shopping and something happened. Maybe the stress she had undergone with Donna. I guess stress can lead to epileptic fits. Mm -hmm. And so maybe she left to go walk and go grab this monkey from somewhere and the stress caused an epileptic fit and they thought maybe she had had a seizure. Maybe she hit her head during the seizure and she was suffering amnesia somewhere. And she didn't have any credit cards or driver's license or anything on her. Exactly. And police try to explain that if this were the actual case, they had been in, like, they're in touch with hospitals. If somebody Mm -hmm. comes in and doesn't know who they are, they will go to police and say, we have somebody fitting this description. Are you missing anybody in this description? Like, there is communication between hospitals and police. And there was nobody that matched her description. Pat was not at a hospital. Okay. Jim and Toinette went out themselves, passing out flyers, asking bus drivers that they had seen her. Toinette went into all the local stores that sold the singing monkey with a picture of Pat. She actually did discover at a local convenience store a worker that recognized Pat as being in the store for the singing monkey. But that's it. That's it. The tip led nowhere. It means that she was there, but that's it. But where is she now? Right. As more time went on, the police led press conferences, spoke to TV crews and newspapers, putting a story out there as often and in as many places as possible. Over the next few years, the family and friends were taken up and down their emotions on this roller coaster, Mm -hmm. following this tip and that tip, Sure, but it all led nowhere. A tip came in saying she was in Pennsylvania, Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, actually. Apparently, somebody was driving down the road and believed they saw her standing at the crosswalk. And what's interesting is Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, is where Pat and Jim had a timeshare. They vacationed there regularly. Oh, She was familiar with the location. Okay. Maybe it really was her. Maybe she really did just need to get away. For years? But maybe she had amnesia. Maybe, you know, maybe she did hit her head and she somehow ended up there. So Jim goes to Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, and he talks to restaurant owners, people on the street, again, bus drivers. I mean, he talks to anybody that'll give him the time of day, shows her picture to everybody, hangs flyers. But again, nothing. Nothing. And then there was a phone call. Quote, I killed Pat Viola. I killed the old girl, unquote. The detective kept the caller on the phone as long as he could and traced the call that led to an address in Florida. The killer went on to state that he had proof he killed her, saying he had her driver's license. Well, that didn't make sense to the detective since her license had been taken, but maybe it was an old license. Oh, even though this was odd and even though this call was very random, of course, he had to follow through with it. Mm -hmm. The killer went on to say that he was getting on a bus and was heading towards Massachusetts. He said he was traveling with a woman. He gave the woman's name and her description. Police find and stop the bus. 
Oh. They don't find the man that was on the phone, but they do find the woman. She confirms that she knows the man that made the phone call. He was her ex-boyfriend, and he had been harassing her because she had left him for another man in Massachusetts. He was using this as a way. Oh for my him gosh, to get, a ploy to get. Oh my gosh. For leaving him or something. Just wrong on so many levels. Many levels. Oh. Ten years pass. And in January 2011, a private investigator, Gary Miko, steps into the picture. He had just read an article about how many missing people there were in the United States. He was overwhelmed with the evidence that was out there, and he wanted to help. He started in his local state of New Jersey. He searched for missing persons in New Jersey and came across Jim's information. He called Jim. He wanted to provide his help in any way he could. He knew he couldn't solve them all, but one case was a step, right? Right, right. He headed to Bogota. He drove Pat's Street. He walked Pat's Street. He made sure to walk on the street at the same time that she would have on her normal day-to-day routine. He walked to the school from the house and then from the school to the house, waving at the mailman, just as Pat had done 10 years ago. He talked to the mailman, who stated he remembered seeing her walk home that fateful day. Quote, I can't believe there's not a connection between what happened in 1997 and Patricia's disappearance. Huh? What? Gary looks into this. Apparently, in 1997, on October 23rd, there had been a triple homicide across the street. The owner of the home was a diamond dealer. The homicide was apparently a robbery gone wrong. Thanks to a neighborhood tipster who saw a suspicious man sitting in the car outside of the home on the day of the homicide, the killers were arrested. But what does a homicide in 1997 and a missing person in 2001 have in common, besides the fact that the two crimes took place on the same street. Well, apparently, the murder trial was going on in, the, in late 2000 and early 2001. And during that time, one of the murderers that was facing a life sentence had decided to search for a hitman to do away with any witnesses. I guess he thought this would make his case easier and... No witnesses. He can't be put away for life. But an undercover police officer went into the jail and posed as a hitman. So Mm. it never happened. Never came to. Okay. But maybe it did in some other way. Maybe the undercover cop got there, but maybe not in time. And maybe Pat was assumed to be one of the witnesses. I don't know. Detectives on Pat's case were not convinced of this. Pat had never been named in that investigation. Hmm. You know, honestly, she was never named in that investigation. She was not a tipster. She was not anything. Like, they just really think that it was just a coincidence that it all happened on the same street. Okay. I keep coming back to that tripped alarm. What tripped Mm -hmm. it? Yeah. Was it the door left open? Was somebody still in the house when the investigators came and looked around the house? And then when Pat got home from the library, they were still in there. Mm -hmm. Burglars do go back to the same house. You know, it's not like they don't hit a house once and never go back. Maybe they thought 10 years later they could, the diamond dealer lived there. I don't know. Maybe they just went to the wrong house or 
I don't, I don't know. Another burglary gone wrong. But it sounds like uh, their house was pretty modest. It's not like they lived in a big fancy house, did they? No, no. Yeah. In 2008, Patricia's law was passed. This law bars police from refusing to accept a missing person's report and requires them to notify a missing person's family of support services right away. If their person remains missing after 30 days, the law requires police to attempt to gather DNA samples. Oh. This story does have an ending, but not one that you nor I will like. Apparently, back in 2002... Remains had been discovered on Rockaway Beach in Queens about a year after she went missing. Okay. The remains were not identified as Patricia's until 2012. Oh, they were. I think because of September 11th that happened in 2001. Mm-hmm. Remember, she went missing in February of 2001. And I think, you know, it got lost among all those discoveries. and Sure. Sure. Because it was discovered in March of 2002. So I think, and and you have to remember the cost and the manpower that goes behind DNA testing. It takes a lot of time, takes a lot of money, and you can't just find remains, put it in a box, and it says, ding, 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 this is so-and-so. Like, it it takes a lot. 10 years? Yeah, I don't think they had any DNA to compare it to either. Uh, I believe her children gave their DNA sample in maybe 2011, I think is what I read. So, and then again, you had September 11th. So you had that fate that happened just across the bridge, just 15 miles away or at the same time. And again, how many bodies do they find? I mean, that's terrible Mm -hmm. to say, but you know, this is not a just one time up thing. So her remains were discovered But real answers were not. Was she taken? Did she walk away? Why did she have that conversation with Toinette about her children? Yeah. Did she have a seizure and fall and something happened? Police have not closed the case. The case is still being looked into. And I pray for the Violas that an answer will come to them. There are many families searching for answers to missing persons cases in the United States. Like Gary Miko, I was in awe of the numbers. According to the National Missing and Unidentified Persons database, which is funded by the U.S. Department of Justice, more than 600,000 persons of all ages go missing every year. Oh my gosh. And approximately 4,400 unidentified bodies are recovered every year. Wow. In like absolute number terms, California has the largest number of missing people. Like Mm -hmm. if you were to compare states. So they have the most missing people total. But because of the size of California, its rate of missing people is pretty average. It's 5.4 missing persons per 100,000. The highest rate of missing persons is actually in Alaska with 41.8 missing people per 100,000. That's five times the rate in California. The state with the lowest is Massachusetts at 1.8 missing persons per 100,000. And Rhode Island has actually 
only had 20 missing people total. Wow. According to the website worldpopulationreview.com, most missing persons cases are solved pretty quickly within a year. So of that 600,000, I think it's like 597,000 are solved within a really? year. Oh. And those are just numbers I just kind of pulled out. But most cases within that year are solved. Okay, that's good to know. With the advances in technology and there's better communication and tracking like their last known whereabouts in the United States, at least, that's been very helpful. That's not saying that all of them, though. About 17,000 missing persons and 13,000 unidentified body cases remain open in the United States to this day. Scrolling the FBI's missing persons database on their website was totally disheartening. They aren't just numbers. These are missing people, missing moms and dads, missing brothers and sisters. We get touched and pulled into these stories in these 30, 45 minute segments. But these people's families are affected with these stories and the loss daily. And I truly hurt for them. Jim kept Pat's Valentine's presents wrapped, waiting for her to come back and open them. She was so loved. My heart just breaks for Michael and Christine as they go on in their lives, creating families and memories of their own without their mother. Yeah. And for all the families out there that are incomplete missing a loved one. So I know that was a sad note to end on, but they're not numbers. They're people. And right. it costs a lot of money to identify. And you know, there's a lot of science still behind it. It is being done. Like I said, there's of that 600,000, there's only 17,000 unsolved. But it's still 17,000. Exactly. With as quickly as we have advanced throughout just this short amount of time, hopefully we can advance even more in getting these, you know, DNA profiles. And, you know, now they've got that computer thing that I forget what it's called, where they put DNA and they get a like a virtual figure up there that they can identify the person. And I mean, these are great tools. Yeah, that's what the National Missing and Unidentified Persons, it's NAMIS database. They have all the DNA in there so they can match it and they work with the u.s department of justice it is all kind of coming together you got to think back in the day too like police had their own files and their filing cabinet in their offices and if a case happened in another county it's not like they could compare these files no they didn't let alone state right and look where we are now so there's always room for growth yes but oh it's just so sad so sad and, and yeah, they found her remains, but we still don't have answers. There's so many. Yeah, there's so many questions still. Ugh. All right. Let's move on to a haunting because yours wasn't haunting enough. Let's move on to why the heck your cocktail had to be red, mom. Had to be red. And it, man, it's pretty darn good. So I had the cranberry juice I used was like real cranberry juice, like no sugar added cranberry juice. <laughs> It's really, I mean, it's very healthy, I guess, but it's very tart. So I'm kind of happy I added the, (laughs) I'm happy I added the grenadine because, whew. All right. All right, mom. Bring us up. I know. I am going to tell you about 
yet another haunted road. Oh, it's been a while since we've been down one of those. I know, down the road. (laughs) (laughs) But I just couldn't resist this one. Clinton Road and West Milford is supposedly the most haunted road, not only in New Jersey, but in the whole U.S. United (laughs) States. Oh, boy. Uh, I think we add that in every haunting we do. Anyway, the most haunted hospital in the world, the most haunted house in the world, the most haunted road in the world. (laughs) It's a 10 mile road lined on either side by thick woods. Oh, the haunted roads usually are. Aren't they Surrounded by woods. (laughs) And they're very deserted. Okay, so far it's following in line with everything. Yep, we're on the right track. We're on the right road. Yeah. Okay. If you Google haunted New Jersey, I guarantee you will come across Clinton Road. It's on every single website I looked at. It has been warned by many not to step out of your car if you're traveling down the road at night. That's, of course, when the strange things happen along the road. Unexplained lights among the trees. A black truck that follows closely behind you only to vanish. Figures on the side of the road weirdly dressed watching you pass. Now, I think that's pretty darn creepy. (laughs) Just saying. But looking back, they're gone. These woods were or are supposedly where witches, Satanists, and the KKK gather. Not together, of course. I'm not saying it's a big... (laughs) What a party. (laughs) Wow. It's a big bad party. I'm just saying, you know, separately. Bad woods. (laughs) Weird New Jersey, or this weird NJ magazine, wrote not an article, but rather an entire issue about Clinton Road and all its weirdness. Oh, wow. Now, I'm not saying that things haven't happened along this road. There actually was a body found on May 14th, 1983. A bicyclist was riding down the road that morning when he saw a happy gathering of turkey vultures. A happy gathering of witches, Satanists, and the KKK. And no, it was just turkey vultures. God. But if you're familiar with turkey vultures, which we are in Kansas, uh, you know it's never a good thing when you see turkey vultures flying in a circle above something. No, they're usually you know circling something dead. something dead. Yes. These guys weren't circling. They were having a happy party on the ground. Ew. When he cleared them away, he discovered the dead body of Daniel Deppner wrapped in a green garbage bag. Richard, quote, Iceman, that's what he's called, Kuklinski, I guess because he iced a lot of people. Ew. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. I'm so sorry. I thought you meant the man who discovered the body's name was Iceman. And I was like, why? (laughs) (laughs) Let me finish my sentence. Okay. Sorry. (laughs) Richard, quote, Iceman, Kuklinski was later charged with the mob killing. Oh, Kind of makes you wonder if any other mob killings went undetected because the bodies of the victims were dumped in the woods along this desolate road. Yeah. Oh. Okay, on with the legends or stories that make this road so well known. Probably the scariest, if I can go so far as to say that, is the Ghost Boy Bridge. 
Supposedly, there was a little boy killed in this section of the road as he was chasing down a coin that had fallen out of his hand. Oh, no. While retrieving it, a car came very quickly around Dead Man's Curve and hit the boy, killing him. Well, it had to have been called Dead Man's Curve for another reason before the boy. Right. Well, if you, it's a very, it's a very sharp curve. <laughs> now, supposedly, tossing a coin over the bridge and into the water like to make a wish, the ghost boy promptly returns the coin to you. Oh. Now, normally you don't see the boy. The coin is just returned. I'm curious how that works. I mean, he's like thrown back at you and hits you in the forehead. Like, I don't do you see the coin just floating in the air and then landing in your hand? Or like you said, does it pop up and bop you in the head? Or <laughs> is it just automatically in your hand? I mean, I have no idea. It huh. also makes me wonder how much money has actually been lost due to people wanting to see that this legend is real. Yeah, I know. How many coins are down are in that down? water? <laughs> I know. Not only has a ghost truck, well, the ghost truck, I guess, been spotted, but also a ghost Camaro driven oh. by a girl who supposedly crashed on the road in 1988. Oh, and I can't forget about the ghosts of the two dead park rangers who died while on the job in 1939. These two have been seen by people hiking and camping at night near the road. No haunted road is worth its two cents if it doesn't have a witch's cabin. Two cents, though? <laughs> you and your coins. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... It there always has to be a witch's house or something, right? I'm just in picturing the... Hansel and Gretel now. <laughs> <laughs> in, the, in the woods. I think every road that I know that I've covered has had a witch's cabin someplace. Clinton Road one-ups that. It has, I want to say this word right, it has a druidic temple where rituals were performed by local druids. Beware. A curse may fall if you come too closely to the ruins of the temple. Or you may just get hurt as you wander around what was actually an iron smelter built in 1826 that has oh. fallen into ruins. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> oh, no. Now let's turn to the strange animals that have been reportedly seen in this area. There's the hellhound, which is an albino wolf dog. There have been monkeys, kangaroos what and emos emu yeah emu emos <laughs> emos probably they hang Those out with the witches <laughs> with their black and nail polish and mute sad sad tunes those emos mom <laughs> of these woods this is quite the party <laughs> emus emus even better okay if one of our listeners can draw us a picture of woods with, with witches and what else did we say was out there Some i told Satanists. you i cannot i couldn't resist this there has KKK, to be turkey vultures kangaroos, kangaroos. Monkey, emu, and emos. <laughs> and we can't leave out the infamous Jersey Devil. Oh, 
okay, somebody has to draw this cartoon for me. Like, has to. Please. <laughs> now, the monkey, wolf, and maybe the kangaroo and emu sightings may have actually some substance to them. From 1972 to 76, there was the jungle habitat close to Clinton Road. Oh, Warner Brothers opened the park with over 1,500 animals where you could ride through it in your car or on one of their safari buses and experience animals in the wild. It was a big success, except that there were actually some animals that escaped. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And there was a man mauled by a lion. It turned out it was the man's fault, but still bad publicity. Several animals died from diseases, mostly tuberculosis. Oh, gosh. And from what I understand, Warner Brothers wanted to expand the park to include an amusement park and maybe a water park. But the idea was shut down. Locals were tired of the crowds and the scare of escaping animals. (laughs) So Warner Brothers just cut their losses and closed up shop rather quickly. If you go out there now, I think there's still like, like they just left everything, concession stands and even their little buses that they drove. Everything's just sitting out there. And like the cages and stuff. These animals weren't in cages. They were wild. It was like a open safari type thing. Oh, abandoned stuff just freaks me out. (laughs) It freaks me out so much i don't know what it is it just oh when we went to saint martin's and we were scuba diving i was so excited to go scuba diving mom i don't think i told you this story i was so stinking excited the weather was beautiful it's that beautiful clear water oh my gosh i was pumped i wasn't pregnant anymore last time every time we go i'm always pregnant so i really can't enjoy myself i i was so pumped so we go snorkeling and I'm seeing all these beautiful fish and I'm looking down at these beautiful, beautiful fish. And there at the bottom of the ocean <laughs> is a helicopter. Oh, oh. I'm getting just creeped out just thinking about it. Oh, my gosh. And then there was even more. I was like, oh, no. Oh, Alex goes, don't look over there, Beth. He's like way ahead. Don't look over there. Well, of course, what do I do? I go and I look. There's an old car down there. There's a freaking (laughs) helicopter, an entire helicopter. I just skedaddled right back on that boat and drank some mojitos. I was done. That was terrifying. Were you you snorkeling or scuba diving? Isn't that the same thing? (laughs) What's the one where you're like on the top of the water? I wasn't like going down. That's scuba diving. Is okay, when no, you no. Have tanks and you go down. I wasn't that fancy. I was snorkeling. <laughs> snorkeling. At the top. Okay, that's what, that's what I thought. <laughs> Close to the booze cruise. No, I wasn't going down, but <laughs> okay. you could still see the helicopter. So right. I'm not abandoned- taking that away from you, girl, but I was just like. I don't think you were scuba diving. Oh, yeah. Scuba Steve over here. No. The same thing. (laughs) That was scary, though. So an abandoned zoo with the carts and there's just something eerie about that stuff. It is. It is. Remember that amusement park I covered? Yes. There's uh, just something so eerie about abandoned things things. like that. Yeah. Yeah. So back 
to this. <laughs> okay. Let's get out of the water and back to the habitat. Sorry. Sorry, I had So to, supposedly you know. the animals were sent to zoos throughout the country. Hopefully they were treated better elsewhere. Yeah. But what if the rumors are true and some animals were left to fend for themselves? Kind of love that. That they like actually haunt the forest. That would explain the monkey, wolf, and kangaroo sightings along Clinton Road because then... And the emus. They multiplied basically. Yeah. You know? And so they live there. Yeah. But that would be hard. I mean, if you think... But wouldn't you see winters, like a lot of monkeys then? Like it's not like... But think of the Monkeys are usually in warm climate. I mean, not the monkeys up in what is it, Asia that sit on the snow. <laughs> the- I don't know. Snorkeling and scubaing is the same thing. <laughs> but mostly you see monkeys in warmer climates. That would be rough for them in the winter. Sure. That's very true. So I don't... And, I e- don't. and emos. I mean, they do not like the cold. Yeah, they do. They wear trench. They wear trench coats. <laughs> I meant emus. I honestly meant emus. <laughs> I don't think emus like the cold either. I don't know, but just saying. Okay. What if it's the ghosts of these animals? Ooh. I don't know. The park, however, does not explain the sightings of the Jersey Devil. The legend of the Jersey Devil began over a hundred years ago. There are many stories of the origin, but the following is the most, well, famous. One dark and stormy night ah, in there it is. 1735, a baby was born during a thunderstorm. Now, some say the baby was born to a witch. Others say to a very poor woman who already had a lot of children and cursed this child. Some stories hold that the child was born deformed. Others that due to some illness, the child became deformed as it grew older. But on all accounts, the characteristics of the creature are the same. It has a long body, winged shoulders, a horse-like head, cloven feet, and a thick tail. Oh my gosh. The creature is said to eat chickens and maybe some small pets. Uh. But its food choice has never really been pinned down. He's never been known to eat humans and, on all accounts, may even be a vegetarian. Not really having eaten the chicken or pets. Maybe that's just a legend that goes along with this legend. (laughs) A legend within legend. (laughs) Of course, it is a mythical creature that has been hunted by many throughout the ages. The Jersey Devil has been shot electrocuted, burned to ashes, exercised like demon exorcism, not exercise. Not taken for a run? (laughs) No. I mean, that is traumatizing in itself. (laughs) (laughs) And has been declared dead numerous times, only to be sighted again, roaming the woods and lands of New Jersey. In 1939, the Jersey Devil was supposedly named the official state demon oh wow i even knew the official state demon you know like you have the state tree and you have the state insect and you have the state plant and the state (laughs) bird there's a state demon i don't know (laughs) does missouri and kansas do we have a state demon did you look into that i'm super curious now (laughs) 
<laughs> okay. Oh, back to Haunted Clinton Road. Beware. There is one thing that is definitely fact. Now, this is not made up. It is a fact. Uh-oh. And that is Uh-oh. a stoplight at the intersection of Clinton Road and Route 23 can be as long as five minutes. That is horrible. That is, is known so infuriating. It is known, literally, it is known as the longest traffic light in the U.S., maybe even in the world. <laughs> no wonder people are making up stories that they see monkeys and emus and kangaroos in the woods. They're probably going crazy Thus, sitting at that light. The red drink. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this woman is reaching, ladies and gentlemen. Oh my gosh. The second longest light is supposedly in Delaware somewhere and it's around four minutes. So my suggestion, if you want to investigate Clinton Road yourself, keep your eyes open for strange animals. Watch your step in the ruins. Don't get caught. It's actually off limits. You can toss don't get a- caught. <laughs> Maybe don't go. We can't tell people. To go. If you go, don't get caught. <laughs> you can toss a coin off the bridge at Dead Man's Curve, but don't expect it to return. And if you come to the traffic light at the intersection of Route 23 and you see it turned red, you might as well sit back. Listen to our podcast, <laughs> and you even have time to take notes if you happen to have paper on hand. Oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> Cheers to that, mom. Cheers mm-hmm. to that. Crazy. That's a very busy road. <laughs> no, it's not at all. No, but I was being facetious. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That would be terrible if you have to take that route every day to work and back. Yeah. Because it's not only five minutes on Clinton Road, it's five minutes on Route 23, too. So it's like the longest dang light ever. I wonder if there's a lot of people that sit at that light, though. I mean, I really wonder how many people run it. Because that's a long light. I can barely sit at the... How long is a normal light? Like a little over a couple minutes? Like, I don't even know. No, it's not even... It's not even that. Feels like that sometimes. But I can't imagine what five minutes would feel like. Five minutes. Why? Why? Is there enough traffic that they need that five minutes? Supposedly they're waiting for the kangaroos to pass? Like, what is like going two, on? There's like two lights that are close to, to each other and they have to sync them up or something. I don't know. But, yeah. <laughs> very, very bad if you have to sit at that light. <laughs> wow. Good story, Mom. Good story. Good drink, too. I have to say. My red drink was pretty good. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, you can find sources and photos from this week's episode on our website, KillerHangoverPodcast.com. Hey, guys, do us a favor. Shoot us a message on our website. Just say, hey, how you doing? We want to make sure that those messages are working. It's kind of a new thing we have on there. Shoot us some ideas, some recommendations. And like I asked, if you are a cartoonist or you can draw, I have to see a cartoon of this. Draw us a cartoon. We'll put it on our social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram. We're also on TikTok and YouTube. Subscribe, follow, rate, and review. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Next week, we have another mm. episode. Yes. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) She's 
We're sitting at this red light waiting for mom to come up with her thought process, guys. <laughs> Mom's sitting at the red light. Boo. All right. Next week, we're going to look at the Midwest again. Yep. I have such a great idea for the paranormal story. I am cell staking excited. Oh, good. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening to us 104 times. I just love oh. saying those big numbers. That's so much fun. This was a uh, sad, but ended up being a goofy episode, Mom. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Cheers, Mama. Cheers. Love you, kid. Bye.